Are you ready to dive deep into the intersections of technology, law, and business? Catch the Tech Intersect podcast on our new Advantage Evans YouTube channel. Whether you're connecting on the go or binging episodes from the comfort of your home, you'll never miss a moment again. Plus, you'll experience all types of exciting shorts, special events content, breaking news lives and the comprehensive learning series. Subscribe today, hit the bell for notifications, and enjoy podcast videos and more. Use the link or search for Advantage Evans on YouTube to find our channel so you can watch, learn, and engage where Insider meets Impact. See you there. The way these models work is they were trained on tomes of publicly available copyrighted content. They go steal them. We'll put aside what terms of use might say, but they took them in. And then there's an important piece put into a model. The model, if it's text, creates different weightings to understand how words are associated with one another. Just a big mathematical model of how words intersect with one another. Visual images work differently, but same idea. It just sort of creates these ideas behind how images look and things like that. The copyright owners say, you've infringed my work. The model builders say, this is quintessential fair use. I totally transformed your work. It's not like there's little mini versions of a million photographs in the model. It is, there's a million mathematical models, you know, in the model or weightings or algorithms or diffusions or all sorts of different things. And I'm using it for an entirely different purpose. It's fair use. There have been a number of lawsuits that have been filed going exactly to this issue. Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Tech Intersect, where technology meets the law. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Stuart Levy, a recognized tech transactions and IP law stalwart. All of us wonks at the intersection of IP and this crazy, wild, wonderful world we know of cryptographically secured assets and distributed ledgers, blah, blah, blah. We look to Stu for his leadership and his guidance, and it's always a pleasure to connect with him on these topics a bit more about his background with a career that includes pioneering work in Web3, AI, cybersecurity. He's absolutely shaped some of the tech world's biggest deals. And from his early days at Reuters to advising on major blockchain and AI initiatives, Stu's expertise has made him the go-to authority. And, you know, I don't say that lightly, folks, because there's a lot of people piddling about at the edges but he's the real damn deal on the digital ages pressing legal questions. We will talk about all of that and more, particularly at the intersection of copyright and AI in a moment. But first, Stu, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. I've, I've been called a lot of things. Stalwart, I think, is, is a first. So really appreciate it. 
right back at you, uh, Tanya, for all the exciting, interesting writings you've done and, and talks and work you've done, and also helping teach and mentor the next generation that's been exciting to watch. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, it's just, you know, a passion. And I feel so fortunate to be able to do the things that I love, both as an attorney, but more importantly, as an academic, and also, you know, the practical application of the things that we do in law school is critically important, probably more now than at any other time. It's one thing to normatively pontificate in my law review articles, but it's another thing to really be on the front lines and to kind of build this plane while we're flying it, which makes it quite exciting, right? Right. And so when I saw some of the information that you were sharing on LinkedIn, specifically about a recent copyright law case having a direct impact on artificial intelligence, we know large language models, chat GPT, definitely boomed in the uh, in this year, 2023. But it's an exciting time for the testing of the contours of laws to protect literary and artistic works. So I'm wondering how the emergence of AI-generated content challenges the current framework of copyright law. Yeah, no, it's a really, really great question. I guess let's take it into in maybe three buckets. The first is using AI to generate a work. The second is using works to train in a copyrighted works to train an AI model. And the third is AI generated output and what are the risks of infringement and, and things like that. So let me let's take those in order and start I'll pause after each one and we can chat. So on the first one, so the copyright office has long taken the position that a copyright registration and, and courts have said this copyright protection requires human authorship. As you can imagine, there have not been that many cases where that issue has been challenged. Probably the most interesting case prior to the advent of all these AI issues was there a case in the facts are interesting and the way it came up legally was interesting, but there's a famous case of a nature photographer being out in the jungle and a monkey grabs the wire that's the shutter release and clicks on it and takes a selfie and it's, you know, it's cool, it's selfie, it's monkey, whatever. The artist, I mean, sorry, the photographer does not try to claim anything about, well, the monkey should own the work or anything. Photographer, it's just another photograph, but then publishes a book. The animal rights group says that it was wrong that you did not attribute ownership of this photograph to the monkey because the monkey took it. And the copyright office says you have to be a human. The monkey can't own the work. So there's a couple of like unusual fringe cases like that. And that brings us then to the world of AI, where some of it's interesting and some of it isn't yet that interesting. So what I mean by that is probably the most famous test case the, the copyright office has had so far was brought by a guy named Thaler a little bit of a character in that he's in it to prove a point. So Thaler took a position very different from what other some other people have taken and has argued, almost like in our, our monkey example, that I built this AI model, this AI model generated this artistic work, and the AI should be deemed the author of that work. I'm not claiming I should be it, which you see sometimes. You shouldn't pay attention to the fact that it was AI-generated, here, Thaler's saying the AI model should be the owner of the work. The AI created the work for me as a work for hire. So Thaler loses on the registration. This is already going back to like five years now. Loses on the registration, loses on an appeal to the copyright office. There's a different kind of appeal you can do. Loses on that. 
You think Thaler would let it die. He goes sues in district court, loses in district court. Again, always the same analysis, which is you need human authorship. That's the bedrock of copyright protection and has now appealed that case. Thaler, as an aside, has done the same thing on the patent side, claiming that his AI model invented something and should be listed as the inventor of the patent is lost there as well. So, you know, there's someone trying to, to like make a point and, and, you know, say the AI model should own it. There are a couple more interesting cases that have come since then. And in a recent webinar, the Copyright Office said they actually have not gotten that many AI registrations in the last year. You think they must be inundated with them. They really, they said, not getting very many at all. So the two other cases that have been interesting, one was by a graphic artist named Cash DeNova. She wrote a graphic novel, but then an AI generate the images for them, registers the work, doesn't say anything about the AI piece of it, and then goes and brags or publicizes the fact that she's the first person to get an AI work registered with the Copyright Office. The Copyright Office says, wait a second, we ask a few questions, ask her about her process, learns that the graphic piece of the graphic novel were AI generated, and says, you can copyright protect your original text. You can copyright protect the arrangement of what order you use these images in. That's scant but protectable expression. But you cannot protect the AI-generated works themselves. And what came up in that case, and then shortly thereafter in March of this past year, the Copyright Office came out with guidance about, you know, what is this all about? What do we mean here? What they said there in Castanova's case and then said in their guidance was the fact that you are putting in human prompts to generate an output is not sufficient human authorship to create copyright protection. And their reasoning, which I personally think makes sense, and then Castanova's case, they had really good examples of this. It's still a random image, if you're doing images, a random image generator, meaning you put in a bunch of words, you get four images back, very different images. Midjourney, which is the AI model she used. Now you think, you know, I don't like that the sky is blue. I'm going to take out the word blue. It's not that you get the same images now with your new prompt, but it's now a red sky, not a blue sky. You get four entirely new images. And so they said, you're really, as a human, not doing much. It's not like you're tweaking the images little by little to get something. And so not protectable. The other thing they analogize the two, both in their guidance and in the Casanova case, is well, why is this not like Photoshop? I'm a photographer, I take a picture, I go into Photoshop, I turn the background sky from blue to red, I erase out the lamppost that I don't think looks there, I play with the lighting, I do all these things. Why is this any different? And again, the view of the Copyright Office is, well, it is different because there, you know, you're using it as a tool, you're guiding the tool what to do for you. you you're not telling the, you know, Photoshop, randomly make this photo more interesting and do whatever you want to do with it. And every time you do that, it did something else. Not copyrightable, it's AI generated. The last piece of this puzzle is, okay, I get that. So now I'm registering a copyright and it's not so black and white. It's not that it's entirely AI generated. It's not so much that it's human generated. It's not the easy, in air quotes, Casanova case where text she did, graphics she didn't do. What if it's a commercial and in the background, in a scene, I, instead of having someone do some background, the AI generated the background. Is this now an AI generated work not protectable or is it human generated work? And how do I even register that? So the copyright office did this webinar 
where they went through that and said, you absolutely can register the work. You need to, as a human authored work, you need to disclaim the AI work. And their analogy, which I think makes sense, is just like you would disclaim anything in a registration. Let's say the background was the public domain. You might say background in public domain, background owned by someone else. You know, I'm not claiming copyright ownership of that. And same thing here. AI not protectable, just disclaim it. One thing they have not been so clear about is their view is you need to do that. But if it's de minimis, you don't even need to say anything. The example they gave in the webinar is I shoot a scene in a movie. I realize there's a stain on the shirt of one of the actors. And instead of using Photoshop or whatever, I have an AI tool that can go through the movie, find the stain wherever it might appear in different scenes and, you know, pulls it out. Their view is no need. That's just a tool. No need to just, you know, disclose that. And where the line is for that is still, they're still not a hundred percent so clear. And I think we'll get that over time. So that's a very long winded how we got to now of what's protectable and what's not under copyright um, and how you'd actually go about registering a work where you used AI in part to generate your work. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. I find this really fascinating because it takes me back to so many of those seminal cases that you know, we think about with respect to photography. It also makes me think of that Malcolm X case, uh, I think it was the Spike Lee case in the visual space, the movie space. And, you know, you can have hundreds of people that are contributing to this final work, but who might be in a position to actually register. Or I'd love your opinion or reflections on the different media perhaps driving a different result, or or maybe it's just all going to be the same because some of the things in terms of selection that we take kind of in the still photography scenario. And then now we have a, um, a literary example with both text and photos. How might this play itself out in the increasingly digitized or digital generated creativity uh, on the movie side, music, et cetera? It's a great question. And, you know, one of the cases the Copyright Office mentions is the Supreme Court case about, like, I guess, literally the first case of, can you own a copyright in a photograph? Right. And today we take that for granted. But when cameras first came out, there was at least a legitimate argument of you did nothing. Let's take, you know, an extreme case. You didn't create, you know, like a still image on a table that you then photograph. You just go out into the park, stick your camera up, take a picture. The camera did all the work. You know, where is the human creative element to that at all? And the Supreme Court found that there was and that there's enough, you know, judgment in the, you know, what time of day I took it exactly, where I put my camera, you know, maybe how I 
you know, set di- different settings. Back then, I don't know if they had the kinds of the extent of settings we have today, right. but <laughs> but you know, there's some amount of human work that you do, which the court said allows you human authorship. Now, it's, what's interesting is the court didn't say you have human authorship in a photo over these components, but not those components, because that a camera just did. You own it lock, stock, and barrel. And, you know, with AI, again, it's different. I, I will say that, you know, the court even said this in the Thaler case that I talked about earlier, where Thaler said, well, the AI created the work. The court has this paragraph in the end of, you know, we're kind of in a whole new world here. And this does not mean that this will always be the case. And you could imagine AI evolves or is used in a way where there is human authorship and you should look at AI like you look at a camera. It's hard to imagine what that would be like when we're not there yet, but the court itself said, watch this space. Absolutely. Because we know that technology is constantly ahead of the law. It's actually a feature, not a bug, (laughs) as it takes some time to work those things out. I know it's easy from the tech side to say how far behind the law always is, but there's some reason for that. And there's some laws that endure for centuries and centuries and some that come squarely with the moment in time where it has to evolve. Right. This very well may be that moment where we have, you know, you think over the years about the different types of technology that has called into question the nature of authorship, the nature of sufficient permanence or or fixation, contribution, selection and arrangement, so many of the things that you mentioned. This is a very you know, I have to sit back and kind of scratch my head to say, gosh, I hate to say it depends or we don't know, but there's so many different ways to approach it. Have you ever found yourself puzzled, wondering if cryptocurrency is just a fleeting trend, a scam or perhaps the future? Hi, I'm Dr. Tanya Evans, and I'm here to introduce you to my new book, Digital Money Demystified, Your Ultimate Guide to Deciphering the Crypto Maze. As a legal policy and crypto education expert, I've crafted this book to cut through the chaos, debunk the myths, and tackle the FUD that's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. From captivating headlines to meticulously sourced data, I guide you through the promises and the pitfalls of digital assets. With 12 chapters and 10 myths dispelled, Digital Money Demystified is designed for investors, business owners, and professionals eager to navigate the digital economy. It's more than just a book. It's a tool for economic empowerment that directs you safely and confidently from cash to crypto. Say goodbye to bewilderment and hello to enlightenment. Transform from crypto curious to confident sidestep those scammers and embrace the future of work, wealth, and creativity. Grab your copy of Digital Money Demystified today at the book's companion website, digitalmoneydemystified.com or wherever books are sold. This is the right book, the right voice at the right time. Don't miss out on the digital revolution. Stop by digitalmoneydemystified.com now. I did a lot of writing early in my academic career, hip hop and the law. And looking at some of those iconic, like it makes me think of Public Enemy and that iconic early album where there were hundreds of oral fragments, right? That are in and of themselves individually, you can't even identify where they were sampled from, but putting hundreds and hundreds of samples together where today 
no one could ever pay for what PE did at that moment in time. And the argument at the time was using the sampler to analogize earlier to what you said of perhaps an artist in painting and putting things together in a way that might suggest fair use. I imagine some of the defenses to copyright infringement are also tested. So I'm just wondering your thoughts, for example, of fair use and something that is sufficiently transformative. You know, I hate to fall down that rabbit hole, but naturally that begs the next question. Yeah. So I think that gets into the, you know, the, the final two buckets um, I was outlining at the beginning. It's a great question. So let's start with the quote unquote easier case, which is I do some prompt. Let's let's use, you know, the cash of example, right? She's creating a graphic novel. She puts in a prompt and it generates an image. She uses the image in her graphic novel. And someone comes along and sees a graphic novel and says, wait a second, that's my image. Like, I didn't give you permission to use that. And Cashman never says, well, you know, I put it through this, I put a prompt, here's the prompt I put in, and it just randomly generated some images, and I didn't know it was going to pick yours. You know, my view is that the copyright owner would have a very strong infringement case. And maybe not at the point of creation of the work, but once you start distributing it, it, distributing it, copying it, you're doing that to an infringing work. And I think courts would look at it as good old-fashioned infringement, original work, new work, are these substantially similar or not? What I think might be interesting when you can see arguments coming up is, and again, I'm using Cashnova just as, as an example, saying, I never saw you. I had no access to your work. Right. Because copyright infringement requires access and copying. There are not that many access cases because almost always there was access. That's not the issue. Mm. There are a few music cases, you know, where the songwriter said, I never heard this song. I did not copy it. Here, you could imagine Cash Genova even having a stronger argument than those music cases saying, like, I, it's not like I generated an image from Star Wars and, you know, how could I not know that when I right. put my prompt in, I was going to get this. I put in old lady sitting at window with candle in a haunted looking house and gray hair. <laughs> and this is what I got. The AI model builders will argue the odds of that happening are, are pretty low. Microsoft is willing now in their co-pilot AI to give you a copyright commitment, which they'll indemnify you for exactly such a claim, unless it was your prompt that guided it to create an infringing image, or you fed into the model infringing images and said, you know, create something like this. But they think the odds are that's never going to happen, or Mm -hmm. the percentage is low enough that they're willing to indemnify you. But I think if that were to happen, you'd have a good case. So that's the quote-unquote easy situation, right? The works look pretty similar, and now the question is, are there defenses? Because you're right, I'm selling a work that looks exactly like yours. The more interesting case gets to our middle category, which is where the real battles are being waged in the intersection of copyright and AI, which is the way these models work is they were trained on tomes of publicly available but not in the public domain, publicly available, copyrighted content, mostly ingested from the internet, but copyrighted protected material. The fact that they go steal them, we'll put aside what terms of use might say, but they took them in. And so the argument is, is, and then they, and then there's an important piece that I left out. They then put into a model, the model, if it's text, creates different weightings to understand how words are associated with one another. Mm. You know, you see the word forecast, chances are the word rain is, is going to be there, you know, as a, as a 
a word after that. It just creates all these weightings. It's just a big mathematical model mm. of how words intersect with one another. Visual images work differently, but same idea. It just sort of creates these ideas behind how images look and things like that. The copyright owners say, you've infringed my work. The model builders say, this is quintessential fair use. I totally transformed your work. It's not like there's little mini versions of a million photographs in the model. It is, there's a million mathematical models, you know, in the model or weightings or algorithms or diffusions or all sorts of different things. And I'm using it for an entirely different purpose. And there's no market here. And, you know, I, win, I almost like win on everything. It's fair use. Right. There have been a number of lawsuits that have been filed going exactly to this issue. The problem, and I, and I think personally, we're three years out from a real decision in this because I think these cases will be decided. They'll be appealed. There'll either be a conflict you know, between the circuits or something that'll get it to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court will put it on the docket, hear it in your decision. So, you know, I think three years out till we get to there. And I think it's going to take that before we have some answer on this issue. The better cases that have been brought in this area are ones that have said, well, but here's how you're wrong. Mm. You've said, you just used it as input and you created these weightings and it's got nothing to do with my work. And the Authors Guild is the case I'm thinking of when I say this. The Authors Guild generated prompts where they were able to generate what would likely be infringing works of the original. So it's not like, look, you input all my books, but you'd never know that it was my books that were the input. It's just creating text about other things. They said, look, but if I can create the next in a series of stories or a summary of the work that is pretty close to the work, you know, you've now taken my work and used it for infringing purposes and not fair use. And where that line is and who's right in that, I think there are interesting arguments on both sides of that equation. I think the facts you're dealing with are very important. And as I said, I think that's where over the next two, three years, the battles are really going to be waged. What a couple of um, plaintiffs, and they're all class act, putative class action lawsuits, what a couple of plaintiffs have argued, which I think is a tougher argument is if my works were part of the material that was ingested to build this model, even if it's a tiny percentage, by definition, every work generated is a derivative of my work. And that, I think, is a hard argument. I'm not saying it's an impossible argument, but I think it might be a hard argument. It depends a lot on the facts. But that's, you know, it's an interesting argument that everything is by definition a derivative of mine because my inputs are what allowed you to create that output. That is, I'm so glad that you added that additional point because it was precisely what I was about to kind of opine on this. We've spent so much time in copyright jurisprudence analyzing what transformative use might be on the fair use side versus you think of 106 rights with the adaptation right, which is what you are expounding upon and how much would be sufficiently transformative to move away from a derivative work to something that is completely new. And this is really, I certainly don't say this often, and we can think of various points of technology, the piano roll, still photos, moving pictures, and all of that at a certain point where there's this tension that requires a result. And I think that you're spot on in terms of the way this will, this issue will work its way through the courts and ultimately be decided in the Supreme Court. 
final question because there's so many different routes to this. You have, of course, the Copyright Office. You have legislative initiatives that create enabling legislation for certain types of other agencies. You have independent agencies, and then you have the judiciary. They all have to work together to formulate something that is workable for folks in this increasingly digitized age. It's just moving so fast. Stu, my head is spinning (laughs) and I like this stuff. So I can imagine what it is for others. Final question is just looking ahead. We kind of feel like we're right at the heart of this final question about key legal battles. So you've already articulated probably the pathway to SCOTUS weighing in on a host of issues. Are there any other key legal issues that folks on a kind of all stakeholders should be aware of or things that you've seen that people need to keep their heads up about AI and the intersection of AI and copyright? Yeah. So on the copyright side, I think, you know, we've, we've hit the key ones. I mean, I do think we might see an infringement case like the one I described, which is infringing work generated innocent infringer. And someone shows up and says, that looks a heck of a lot like my work. And, you know, and the defense being, I didn't have access or it's AI generated, therefore it can't be. That'll be interesting. We've hit on some of the key ones. I think one that's that's a tangent to this issue, so not mm. purely copyright, but, you know, one step removed, is cases where the plaintiff is arguing that my work came with certain license conditions mm. that you did not follow by using my work in your model. And there's a case like this, which is, I think, a very interesting case. A lot of the cases that have been brought so far have been about the fair use issue, been in the text or image, you know, graphic image uh, categories. There's one case out there and that involves a punitive class action of code developers. Is that our computer code was ingested into a model and went and like, these models that generate computer code for you, just like they generate text. And their code was all open source. So out there in the world for anyone to use, protected by copyright, but you know, open free license to use. Right. So your initial reaction might be, well, that's surely what you could use because it's there for the taking. But all of that open source is under a license agreement, which says you have to include a copyright notice that I'm the author. You have to include a disclaimer that, you know, all rights reserved, whatever disclaimer you want to put in. There's certain conditions in the contract, my open source license contract, that you did not follow when you took my code and ingested it into your model. So you remove my copyright management information under the DMCA, and you violated my license agreement when you used it. I think that's going to be an interesting area of litigation as well until this all gets sorted out. Yeah, I definitely see that side of the data scraping issue and the inputs being a really big area of exposure for those who are developing in this space. It also makes me think of, because you mentioned earlier, the battle oftentimes around access and actual copying and then substantial copying as a matter of law, that idea of access really changes when you're accessing a data model that you don't exactly know where things came from. We've never talked about intent in the copyright realm. I wonder if there will be some area for that, given the fact that so many people are accessing, um, no pun intended, large language models for output without having an appreciation for the input. 
which raises all sorts of interesting questions that I have no answers for, but definitely will be interesting to see. I mean, I will say one thing which, you know, you, which everyone can take some amount of comfort in, and I'm sure people might, you know, disagree about this, but the Copyright Office is very on top of this issue. I don't feel that they're asleep at the switch, not paying attention, giving it the back of their hand. Mm-hmm. They're taking it seriously. They have folks working on this issue. They just put out uh, a notice of inquiry asking the public to comment on a whole variety of areas in this area. They got 10,000 comments. I think a good number were, you know, people just, just riffing on AI. Right. I wonder if some were AI generated. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. yeah that's a good point. <laughs> great, great, great. Very meta. Yes. But they're, I think, they're very, very well focused on this area. Stu Levy, thank you so much for joining me again. We will have many opportunities to come back and to wonder about these things, but I'm grateful to have you kind of out there on the leading edge of it to help keep your clients safe and the evolution of law in this area moving forward. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. Great discussion. Thank you so much for listening to the Tech Intersect podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you love it, please tell the world. If not, go ahead and tell me. And in either case, drop a comment or ping me on social media at IPProfEvans with the hashtag TechIntersect. And finally, a quick reminder on digital safety. There are a lot of scammers out there impersonating me and others, and I need your help. Now hear this. And remember, I will never slide into your DMs to say peace and blessings or hey, and I will never reach out to solicit your time or your money on social media like ever. I'm not a trader. I am an educator and an attorney licensed in four states. Thank you very much. I'm here to inform, inspire, and empower. No cap and definitely no forex. So be careful, make good choices, and remember, I developed an entire free masterclass about the topic of digital safety in the crypto space. So check out secureyourcryptobag.com for more information. That's secureyourcryptobag.com. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine. there, Tech Intersect listeners. Have you ever encountered naysayers claiming crypto is too volatile, a total scam, or a hacker's paradise? Well, it's time to dispel these persistent myths and reveal the truth. It's exactly why I wrote Digital Money Demystified, available now wherever books are sold. And this book is your golden ticket from being crypto curious to radiating crypto confidence. Navigate the crypto world with clarity and conquer the chaos. Get your copy today to learn about my journey, separate fact from fiction, and maybe even embark on a transformative journey yourself. Don't stop there. Enhance your learning experience exponentially. Join the DMD Insiders Membership Club. It's a gateway to premier coaching, engaging community, 
and unparalleled content that complements the insights in the book. Together, we'll unlock the potential of digital money and stride confidently into the future. Visit digitalmoneydemystified.com, grab your guide to the crypto universe, and become an esteemed member of our Insiders Club. Let's decode the digital dollar and invest in your crypto-savvy future right now.